0: You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. 1997, the first place I lived was an apartment downtown that looked out at the Portland Art Museum. Soon I was going there often, be it to see old movies at its Northwest Film Center, or to discover favorite new artworks. I even became slightly obsessed with this one French landscape painting called The Forest at Fountain I still go back to see it again on every visit. Most of all, I fell in love with the art museum building itself, a work of early modernism completed in 1932 from a design by Pietro Belluschi, who would go on to become the city's most internationally renowned architect. The Art Museum Commission became a kind of launching pad for the 33-year-old, an Italian immigrant and World War I veteran. Belluschi had come to Portland just nine years earlier, speaking no English. He intended to stay just a few months, but as Mussolini's fascist government came to power, Beluschi's family cautioned him to stay in America, Back in those days, the United States was a safe haven from fascism. Belusky's talent must have been obvious even if his English was limited because he was quickly hired by Portland's most acclaimed architect of the early 20th century, A. E. Doyle, who had designed local landmarks like Central Library, the Benson Hotel, the Meyer & Frank Department Store, and Reed College. Belusky rose rapidly in Doyle's firm, becoming its chief designer. When Doyle died in 1928, the young Italian architect took over the firm, retaining his old boss's name on the door for another 15 years out of respect. But by the time Belusky won that Portland Art Museum Commission, he'd been through a lot. It was the Great Depression, and the firm had shrunk to just a few employees. They even nearly went out of business. So you could argue that the Portland Art Museum Commission didn't just launch Belusky's career, but maybe saved it. Belusky also had to fight for his design. The museum's trustees wanted something properly old-looking, preferably a Georgian style like Central Library had been. But instead of fulfilling their wishes, the architect called Frank Lloyd Wright, the world's most famous architect, to ask for advice. He sent him the drawings. And the master responded, writing, quote, My dear Belewski, I think your plan simple and sensible, and the exterior would mark an advance in culture for Portland. And you know what? It worked. The trustees backed down, and accepted Pietro Beluski's modern design. In 1940, just eight years after the building's completion, Beluski got a little validation when the American Institute of Architects named the building to its list of one of the 100 best works of architecture in the United States from the previous 20 years. Over the ensuing decades, the museum has continued to expand and evolve. New wings were added in 1939 and 69, and then in 2005, The historic Masonic Temple next door was renovated as part of the Art Museum, now called the Mark Building, including new galleries for modern and contemporary art known as the Jubitz Center. And what do you know, today plans are underway for a new glass-walled pavilion connecting the two buildings. It's to be known as the Rothko Pavilion, honoring Portland's most famous artist, mid-century abstract expressionist Mark Rothko. I must say I'm a gigantic fan. So this episode features first an interview with architect Anthony Beluski about his father's legacy and what Pietro might think about today's expansion plans. Then the second interview is with Grace Cook-Anderson, the museum's current Arlene and Harold Schnitzer Curator of Northwest Art. We talked with Grace about curating for the Beluski Museum and what local art means today, including the excellent regional survey she recently curated for the museum that exhibited this spring. The map is not the territory. Indeed. Belusky is an architect based in Portland, but who spent most of his career in Chicago designing a number of landmark projects such as the American Airlines Terminal at O'Hare International Airport, 101 North Wacker Drive in Chicago, an office building, and the gallery in Cleveland, among many, many others. He's also the son of Pietro Belusky, who I've sometimes called the patron saint of Portland architecture, who is probably the city's most significant architect, uh, uh, with apologies to people like A.E. Doyle. Tony, since returning, to Portland a few years ago, has really become a kind of caretaker of his father's legacy, often getting involved in the restoration as a consultant or even as an architect uh, on a number of Pietro projects around Portland and beyond. We're here today to talk with Tony a little bit about the Portland Art Museum and where it falls into the story of Pietro Beluski and what its legacy for the future is as well. Tony, thanks very much for being with us.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me. um, It's always a good topic. Yes, yes.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the situation your father, Pietro Belusky, was in as he vied for and won that Portland Art Museum commission. Of course, around 1931, he had been working for Doyle's firm for quite a number of years, if I'm not mistaken, maybe nearly 18 years. But also, Doyle had passed away in 1928, three years before this commission would have happened for the Portland Art Museum. So he was something close to maybe running... Doyle's firm, if I'm not mistaken. But this is also, uh, as we now know, a moment in his career when he was really establishing himself as an architect and his own voice, even if the firm would not be under his own name yet for a number of years. How much do you think of the Portland Art Museum being a commission that came because it was still Doyle's firm? Or do you think they were really aware of the fact that they were investing themselves in in Pietro Beluski and not warmed over A.E. Doyle?
1: Well, I think Pietro didn't so much um, uh, vie for the Portland Art Museum Commission as he was just in the right place at the right time, but he definitely was the right person for the project, as we see by its uh, success all these years. Doyle had been uh, involved before he died in helping the museum program their needs, but, uh, and he died in uh, 1928, and, and my father had only been at the firm since 1925, so he hadn't been there that long, but everything as a result of the Depression was put on hold. And then after, or I should say during the Depression, Pietro had strong support from uh, the founder, Anna Crocker, at the museum school, where he had taken some art classes. And a mentor, a friend of his, artist Harry Wentz, who was also one of the teachers at the museum school, Uh-huh. Pietro was familiar with uh, Charles Francis Adams as well, who eventually was the chair of the uh, Art Museum Board. So I think he was somewhat known in the community. He had taken art classes. He was well-liked. And I think Annabelle Crocker was very supportive of of the modernist style, which uh, my father was very much a fan of. Somewhat recently, Bill Willingham, who's a, a historian in Portland, He said that Pietro's museum design uh, set a new paradigm for museums in the country in the 30s.
0: Yes. It's just incredible to sort of think of that building as it would have looked in 1932 or 1933 and the model of automobiles that would have been sitting outside and how modern that building really would have seemed. As we consider this kind of moment in Pietro's career and and what it meant for his future as an architect, I'd like to ask you about his particular talents. What aspect or aspects of being an architect do you think Pietro was the most naturally gifted at or that he loved?
1: Well, first of all, he <clears throat> I think he had a tremendous amount of natural uh, talent, but um, mostly he had vision. And I think as an immigrant, he had a certain wisdom that uh, because of travel and because of his education in Rome, uh, growing up in Europe, so he was very conscientious in his work because he was in a new land, new language. And um, he also, I think, was able to persuade clients in a gently but strong uh, direction and never, never pushing too hard. He was, he was very good at conceptualizing projects, more so than, than detailing them. I think he got involved in the architectural details much later in his career, and, and I think uh, when he became more uh, knowledgeable about construction and um, how buildings were put together.
0: Interesting. Interesting. I'm uh, also interested in the idea of the Portland Art Museum not just being an early modern building, but also really showing his roots, his training in what predates modernism, maybe uh, the Beaux-Arts, you might call it, uh, or in some cases classicism or or revival uh, architecture. And so when you look at the Portland Art Museum. Do you see the building in any way as a fusion of modern and traditional architecture? Uh, because there were international style and, and, let's say, Bauhaus buildings by this time. But the Portland Art Museum, to me at least, uh, feels not so much like a break from the past that a lot of other early modernist buildings in perhaps Europe might.
1: Well, my father had um, a certain amount of training in the, in the Beaux-Arts style, but was never convinced of its merits, I think. And that was the, uh, I think that was the root of of his beliefs. And because he read a lot, he studied a lot, he researched and wrote about the new style of modernism, he had an inclination towards uh, modernism at an early age, earlier than most, and I think thought that buildings should, should uh, lack ornamentation that they were given in the past. He was what I call a firm believer in simplicity and elegance. In other words, a lack of meaningless and frivolous detail or decoration. He didn't like that at all.
0: hmm. Mm-hmm. As we kind of think about this building, and I, and I think about the, the many times I've visited the building to see the art, but also to experience the interplay of light and materials and volume there, I wonder for you personally if there are any particular aspects of the Portland Art Museum design that you yourself respond to. And maybe to put that another way, what's the best part of the design in your mind?
1: Well, there's, there's several, and um, first of all, as, as he was only 30 years old uh, when he designed the <laughs> building, so that in itself is amazing. But he really understood the quality of light, and, and he uh, kept the building very simple and very clean lines and a strong direct entry with its uh, very welcoming approach. Um, he used uh, brick and, of course, travertine, which which was really primarily from the, from his experiences in in uh, Italy.
0: Yes, I think of it as a sort of mark of of his Italianness, if, if that's right. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And and the, he uh, he believed in keeping things functional. And um, I think the, what I really enjoy and like and have always uh, thought is wonderful about the exterior, is its uh, lack of pretentiousness. Mm
0: hmm. Mm hmm. If you were to kind of close your eyes and imagine yourself in a particular space in that building as a kind of Uber experience, where where in that museum would you be standing?
1: Right in the main central space as you come in, and, and after you come in the front door through the lobby into that main space with the northern uh, skylights, uh, the uh, clear story lighting. I think mm-hmm. it's just fabulous. I've uh, mentioned uh, on occasion to the uh some of the people at the museum, particularly uh, Brian Fariso and others, that it's too bad. Sometimes they have those windows covered up so the natural light doesn't come in. Mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. it would be really tremendous if that light was there uh, every day.
0: Yes, yes. It's a it, it's, uh... It's just an incredible softness of light. I, I, I think that the design of natural light in interior spaces, how it fills a room, how a room is filled with light, is one of the things uh, as a writer about and an observer of architecture that I enjoy the most, uh, how you kind of create the right kind of natural light that doesn't have a lot of glare, that isn't all on one side of the room, but kind of spreads out and diffuses and becomes a kind of, I think at its best, a kind of soft light experience, and, and I feel like there's a, a wonderful softness of light in, in, in the interior of that building, and yet there are some kind of grand, wide-open volume spaces as well.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: And, you know, it, it strikes me, I'm looking at a copy of the book about your work, Urban Places, Public Spaces, The Architecture of Anthony Belusky. I'm looking at the cover of the book here, and it reminds me that that in your work, too, it's it seems like it's all about the light. You know, I'm looking at a photo of the American Airlines Terminal at O'Hare Airport, which I've also spent uh, some time in as a as a traveler, and the the large expanse and volume, the kind of gallery of of skylights is is just beautiful. And so it it, it seems like uh, it, it shows that even if you made your career in, in Chicago and in Los Angeles and other places, that that you're a Northwest architect too.
1: Well, it's interesting because I I wanted to get involved in the kind of projects that he would not necessarily have been known for or been involved in it, because I was always reaching to be a, a kind of an arm's length relationship, but the most important things about some of the designs are the quality of the light, the public spaces, I would, became an, enraptured by urban public spaces, and I think that's one of the reasons I, the um, publisher came to me, wanted me to to get involved in this, this particular book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Uh, given that, uh, getting back to your father's work again here for a sec, given that he ultimately designed uh, a lot of different types of buildings and became known for many different types of buildings, uh, offices or churches, museums, houses, what what, uh, what do you like best or what, what do you think is um, the most special? I guess, you know, there's obviously an answer that it's the variety itself that makes it special, the fact that he could work these different scales. But um, what is first ballot for you?
1: Well, I think there's no question in my mind that, that uh, I would rank them in the order of churches, um, I think was his, his first, probably, love, because he was uh, from Italy, and his, his, his mother, my grandmother, was a very staunch uh, churchgoer. Um, he was not, in fact, he, but he was very spiritual, and he was able to convince uh, congregations uh, to use modern designs for their traditions and practices. He had quite a range, uh, and he worked on projects from uh, the very first one was St. Thomas More Church here in Portland and Zion Lutheran, which are both fabulous, to uh, one of the very few cathedrals in in the St. Mary's Cathedral in San Francisco. His churches, I think, are known for using the modernist idiom while maintaining the validity of a congregation's uh, traditional symbols. I think that was one of his uh, his, uh, strong points.
0: We're talking about the Portland Art Museum, of course, at a time of transition where um, we're anticipating the construction of the of the Rothko Pavilion that will connect the uh, original uh... Belusky building and its expansions uh... across what had been the sculpture court to connect with the mark building next door the former masonic temple and so what do you make of these expansions and and how the portland art museum is going to change and and uh... to what degree do you feel comfortable uh... sort of um, channeling pietro or or thinking about what he would have wanted
1: well i was asked uh, the same kind of question recently uh, and I, I testified before uh... Landmark's Commission about a week ago, um, and, and I said that, um, you know, I was involved with my father on many projects, and I said a lot of people thought I could channel his thinking. <laughs> and I said uh, one of the things that I would say about the Portland Art Museum, uh, I'm talking about now this, uh, this mega complex. It's, a, it's probably one of the largest uh, complexes in Portland now, or will be, uh, combining two blocks and then closing the street in between, um, but I said if I if I were to channel his thinking, I think that he would agree that we're on the right track. We being the big we in mm-hmm. terms of Portland and and where it's going, because I think he would be he would be in favor. Um, of combining the buildings to work all in unison with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably one of the most important things that that I can do is to help people now move into the next uh, generation, uh, not only of my father's thinking but our current generation's thinking. So if I can help out with that project and others that I'm involved with, um, I'm always uh, willing and capable and and, uh, excited to do it.
0: That's great. That's great. And, and you know, you it's really true. You've been a caretaker or, or an advocate for not only Pietro's work, but like you say, the entire kind of Northwest style. And I've seen you and your wife show up at lectures and building tours for a lot of Pietro's uh, uh, contemporaries and people who kind of built especially a legacy of Northwest modern houses. But uh, finally, as we conclude here, w- one last question about the Portland Art Museum is there any particular work or, or set of works in the Portland Art Museum, any artworks that you particularly like? And uh, have you ever had a, an art-going experience there that is memorable in any way?
1: Yes. I think one of the, uh, one of the most in a very, very um, unknown exhibit was there recently uh, a couple of years ago, and, and it was uh, an exhibit of sculpture. And um, Leroy Setzel was a wonderful wood carver, mm-hmm. and there's a, some of his pieces are in houses all over the uh, Portland, the greater Portland and Oregon uh, area. I was really thrilled to see them all kind of—not all of them, but the vast majority, I'd, I'd say 75, 80 percent of his sculptures were all in one room— mm-hmm. And they were all talking to each other. They were all kind of relating to each other. And I think that kind of exhibit is just thrilling to see. It's unfortunate it didn't get enough, perhaps, notoriety that other large-scale painters get. Mm -hmm. But it was really one of the best exhibits that I've seen Mm -hmm. uh, ever.
0: And of course, they worked together. Your father and, and they Setzel. did. and I think of the chapel at the University of Portland, for example. Yes. That, I, if it, I believe, the door, if not a little bit more, the front facade is is uh, prominently featuring his carvings.
1: And the columns that hold up the front uh, portico. That's are right. all, all done by Setzel. That's right. Wonderful. That's right. Wonderful. Well, and I think one of the uh, one of the uh, things that my father was most uh, interested in when he came from Italy were they really don't use wood because it's all been used up and there isn't that much there and there's not many forests. So when he came to the Northwest, he saw all of these beautiful kinds of wood. And so he got into churches and houses and even uh, the sculptures that all made out of wood. So that was, uh, to him, uh, a wonderful product that he was not aware of prior to coming out here.
0: Great, great. Well, once again, Anthony Beluski, Tony, thank you so much for being with us on the show, and it's just, uh, as always, a, a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Thank you, Brian.
0: And now a quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped to make Portland possible in a way since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building? It could be Mutual Materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store it might be slim brick tile from Mutual Materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits, those might be made with Mutual Materials too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out Mutual Materials. And listen to the end of this show for a free resource you might want to check out. Grace Cook-Anderson is the Arlene and Harold Schnitzer Curator of Northwest Art at the Portland Art Museum. Before coming to the Rose City in 2017, she curated contemporary art exhibits for institutions like the Laguna Art Museum in Laguna Beach, California, the Wattis Institute for Contemporary Arts at the California College of Art in San Francisco, and the Center for Contemporary Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, among others. Grace holds undergraduate degrees in art history and art practice from the University of California, Berkeley, and a master's degree in curatorial practice from California College of the Arts in San Francisco. I'm a big fan of the survey of Northwest Art Grace curated that's currently on view at the Portland Art Museum. The map is not the territory. And I also like some of the previous shows she's put together for the Apex series at the museum by artists like Avantika Bawa. I wanted to talk to a curator with fresh eyes about both the art and architecture at the Portland Art Museum and Portland itself. Grace, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: I've said it before, but I I love The Map is Not the Territory. I I love the show. It's uh, maybe my favorite thing of its kind. Uh, There were merits to the Oregon Biennial or to the Contemporary Northwest Art Awards, but at least for me personally, I like this kind of approach best, and I just love some of the art there. So just want to make that abundantly clear. Thank you. (laughs) So I read something that you said about the works in this show being a kind of, I think the phrase you used was generative conversation. And... When I saw the show, it did seem to me that these works are kind of talking to each other in some way. I also heard you talk about going on studio visits and sort of searching for the works and and meeting the artists to put in the show. I wonder if you could just talk about what the process was like for you. Uh, It's an introduction to the region in some ways, and yet it's probably also, in other cases, artists whose work you've been aware of for a while. So what was that like as a kind of moment for you at the museum?
2: In the map is not the territory. I was really clear about not wanting to impose any themes, but wanting to see kind of where those conversations were sort of taking place, mm-hmm. and what conversations were staying with me. So, you know, I think pretty clearly this the 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 large looming idea of climate change definitely is on so many artists' minds. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: One thing I did. Go in knowing is I knew that I wanted to work with artists who were really thinking about larger issues. Not all artists are thinking about larger social issues, but mm-hmm. I—that that is one thing I did want to pursue. Mm-hmm. And then also thinking about this region in critical ways, but also in ways that really think about why we are here, why we choose to stay here. And that element of kinship to the land really rose. But also the tensions, acknowledging the complications of being on this native land mm-hmm. and how to come to terms with that and how to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. So then we also shared reading material and that was kind of the back part. And a lot of it is sort of my selfish indulgence of things that I Enjoy and also, and it was a also a complete experiment. Getting artists to be a part of all the conversations from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. We shared reading materials. The span of materials was amazing. It was in everything from scientific marine biology abstracts to anthropological essays to much more social, um, larger theoretical things to um, prose. It really ran this sort of spectrum, but I think it fed all of us. I think it really informed us in different ways, as well as helping us to understand each other's practices. Yeah,
0: yeah. What about the notion of uh, having to make some tough calls, that you've got to narrow a big list down to whittle it down to just a few? How much do you have to kind of ultimately go with your gut in that kind of decision-making process, or do you have any kind of... Method in your mind of ways in which you're going to make the decision? What's it like making some tough calls?
2: You know, the Northwest region for the museum is quite large. It's Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. And then when I started, I opened it up to British Columbia and mm-hmm. Alaska. Mm-hmm. For this one, I really wanted to focus on the edge, the more coastal regions, the eastern edge of the Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for the next one, I'll go more to the interior spaces. Ah. And partially that was, you know, somewhat superficial because I was thinking about the land, really, mm-hmm. the cascade range versus the, the more... The um,
0: climate zone, too.
2: Exactly. And then also, you know, the very sort of superficial imposition was, you know, like two artists from each area, each mm-hmm. state, you know, so mm-hmm. two from Oregon, two from Washington. Yeah. So those were sort of my structures. But then within that, of course, yeah, it's really hard just to narrow it down. Mm -hmm. So it really became more about how were the conversations happening and what was staying with me. And also imagining in my own mind what artists I would like to see together Mm -hmm. in a space and how would that look. So Mm
0: -hmm.
2: those things really played out quite, quite a lot but there were artists like Henry Chung from Vancouver BC who vibe, whose work I followed for about 10 years yeah. and um, and his work he's one of those artists where his work has stayed with me mm-hmm. and so it's been a wish to work with him so It came together in this really great way. Mm -hmm.
0: That was the video piece, right? It's uh, kind of evocative of that piece of land where the Columbia meets the ocean.
2: That's right, Tansy Point. So it's um, right between Fort Stevens and Astoria, Mm -hmm. right in that middle area there. That was the land of the Chinook Nation, and they're trying to purchase that land.
0: Mm -hmm. And it reminds me, you had said something uh, a minute ago about wanting to be mindful of Uh, social issues and some of the things that we're grappling with in our time uh, and how that is manifested in the artwork. And that particular video piece made me think about the fact that uh, collectively the show seems to be concerning itself or exploring in some way the notion of borders and migration. And so it's kind of fun or interesting to think about this title, The Map is Not the Territory. And yet, in some ways, we kind of impose borders on ourselves, too. And so it's interesting to think of sort of transcending but also being burdened by borders.
2: Yeah, there's so much of that a play on that, right? And I love that every artist has interpreted the map is not the territory in these very different ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think initially, like with Henry Chung, it was very much thinking about what is territory, the, the problem of territory, what are those borders. In an instance like Rob Rhee, who's really thinking about the gourds, mm-hmm. these vessels. Oh, right. And what is inside, what is outside, what are those parameters that inform each other. Mm-hmm. It's it's very much thinking around. The object and sculpture, but I think that too then becomes a metaphor for so many other things of the body, yes, of place of it goes outward in that way.
0: Yeah, I remember these. Uh, I think plaster pieces, and and it seemed like uh, it just that that it that could be related to you know bones in the human body, and that it also had these sculpture qualities, and so there's this um, fascinating ambiguity there.
2: Yeah, yeah. And Rob Ree was one of, the, uh, one of the artists, quite the opposite end of the spectrum of Henry, where it was very much, um, I did a studio visit with him, and it was very much like I wanted to include him right away on the spot another artist where i i took much longer to really think through
0: mhm mhm i was uh, a big fan of the video installation as you enter the piece where there's video being projected onto fabric and i'm trying to remember was that fernanda dagostino yes ben. um that was something special to me because that was an example of where the artwork was interacting to me with the architecture i have these videos i took on my phone when the video was projected onto, not just to the, the kind of wispy fabric hangings, but also onto the travertine floor itself. And it also kind of made me wonder, as a curator, you've got to be, in some cases, mindful of, of the architecture itself. And sometimes it's maybe a little bit more of a kind of white box or at least white wall setting. But I also remember going to other exhibits that you've curated, like the Bawa exhibit solo show for the Apex series that was on that floor with those, uh, uh, you know, big windows coming in and a kind of angle from near the ceiling. What's it like curating for this building?
2: So the map is not the territory. It's the first time I've ever curated an exhibition in that main space. Oh, in that main space. Yeah. Yeah. Which was very intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) But of course... I get to work with such an amazing team at the museum who've been there many more years than I have been and who know the building inside out. Um, In in particular, Matthew Juniper, our our chief preparator. But with Fernanda's piece also, it was really amazing to work with Fernanda D'Agostino, who is very much sensitive to the public and who has done a lot of public artwork. So... And also with the museum's efforts to be much more mindful of um, accessibility. So, that installation actually was quite complicated because, um, in order to make the installation successful, you need as little light coming through as possible. (laughs) In a main courtyard that is all about gathering people and Mm -hmm. the flow of traffic, so it brings in viewer, it brings in Two different places for people to enter right. um, and a group that's entering from the courtyard has to go through the installation in order uh, to go upstairs. Right, um, So it's, it's really kind of a place of a lot of movement.
0: A kind of crossroads in a sense.
2: It is, yes.
0: And challenging maybe then to get people to kind of slow down.
2: Yes, but I think that's where the the mastery of Fernandez's work mm-hmm. was successful because I think people have really slowed down for mm-hmm. to see the piece, to see the movements. People have really stopped to watch, and the projection on the floor, as you had mentioned, the tavern tavertine floor it was really beautiful because all of a sudden that floor feels painterly mm-hmm. with the movement of the bodies that play so well with the textures on the ground. Mm-hmm. But it was very tricky, and we had to, uh, to really spend a lot of time seeing how light affects the space throughout the day.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was amazing to see how accommodating Fernanda was, adjusting her, her work, and also um, Matthew Juniper trying to make that work the best it could be within the confines of the space. Mm-hmm. I think a white cube is really convenient, right uh-huh. it has no history um, you really cater it to having um a very particular experience in a museum like the balouski it's a little bit more challenging it has many histories but i think that's something that is a challenge that i really enjoy but also recognizing that those histories exist mm-hmm. and that's the beauty of architecture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. too is that palimpsest right mm-hmm. that those aspects of history still exist in the space. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. I also wanted to ask you about some of your favorite artworks in the museum. Is there any kind of return must-see work or or things that inspire you uh, in the museum?
2: I think when you're in the arts, it's just you zone in on like, I got to go see that and I got to, and then you leave. I find I have to give myself permission to wander Mm -hmm. and to kind of be in that wanderlust. Mm Once in a while, I I will do that or I really have to like peel myself away from my desk to do that. But there is um, a piece that's up now. It's in the Korean galleries. It's our moon jar. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a contemporary piece, but it's really based on the classic Joseon dynasty um, moon jar. And the artist is Kim Mm Ik-young from 2017. And it's a woman artist. It's basically, when you look at it, it's... No big deal. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's this beautiful, round, white porcelain jar. But I love that it looks like such this humble vessel. It's Korean. It speaks to me because I'm I'm Korean. And I'd worked at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. And the moon jar was always the one jar that I would, the thing that I would visit. I love how humble that vessel is. Yeah. And it just speaks to me. It makes me so happy to see it.
0: It reminds me of how I respond to certain types of Asian ceramics like that, Japanese as well, and how you do have that kind of duality of thought that you're almost thinking, you know, I could put some cornflakes in this, and yet this is a, a masterpiece of sorts.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that's the thing with the moon jar too is it's it looks seemingly simple. It looks, it's very not ornate. There's no decorative elements on it. But I think my understanding is that it's basically two uh, half spheres that are put together to create this very globular form. Mm -hmm. And it can oftentimes collapse onto itself because of its scale. And it's a very difficult kind of task to make. Mm. And yet it looks so simple.
0: I think there's something tantalizing for some reason as well about the phrase moon jar. I, I feel yeah. like I'm just sort of repeating it o- over and over again in my head uh, while you're talking or or like the, it sort of almost like implies some kind of magic is happening or something. I think
2: I think there is magic. Too. I feel like it glows. Yeah, it does have this beautiful presence. I think, too, it gives me this moon jar is, is so perfect in a lot of ways. The, the, the little moments where you can really see the artist's hand I find so delightful mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, going back to The Map is Not the Territory one of the artists whose work really surprised me you know it's one thing you plan an exhibition you can you logically kind of understand I feel like I have a good sense of space you know
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's all in my head I get it but it's it always surprises me when you actually see the works in person mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, the, the works that really kind of punched me in the gut were Charlene Vickers, her Diviner Spears, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. her Sleepwalking Chairs. Too. I really felt her hand in those pieces. Mm-hmm. And it really affected me in a very visceral way. Um, mm-hmm. And that that was a surprise to me.
0: And it's interesting to think of you setting those works and this moon jar in that they're all kind of designed objects in a sense. They're art, of course, but, uh, you know, a bull or a spear or a chair is also a kind of designed functional object.
2: Yes, and I think for Charlene, oftentimes these are props for her performances, so they are active.
0: And, you know, even that video piece by Fernanda D'Agostino, you know, that's still using just a kind of fabric as the 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 kind of thing that makes it sing.
2: Yes, for sure. And the fact that you can't just go through in a straight line in that space, you have to kind of wander through a little bit and your movement affects this this um the delicate scrims.
0: Yes, yes, there's a kind of wispiness to them and then you're seeing the human body in this video and there's a kind of emphasis to me on the sort of curvature and so that that's also a nice juxtaposition back to the architecture again that you know we're talking about a lot of kind of clean lines and hard surfaces and square patterns and the travertine and stuff so you get this kind of gentle sexy curve that's happening both in the material and and in the the representational images in the video itself so it's just wonderful
2: it yeah yeah We have done so many different amazing things in that courtyard space, Mm -hmm. and it just changes dramatically every time. You know, the exhibition before was poetic landscape. Mm -hmm. um, That was the Japanese scroll paintings. And that space was very much this open courtyard. Um, It really changes. The mood changes. And in Fernanda's piece, I was really thinking about that as sort of the beginning and the end of the exhibition experience, um, you know, because she touches on all the issues of border crossings and how that is part related to climate change. Mm -hmm. And she touches on all of those aspects and then also how we're implicated in it, how we're a part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're projected at moments in it.
0: It also occurs to me on a more unfortunate note that we're sitting here talking about a show that's probably going to be closed by the time the podcast comes on. Um, And so I think we'll probably be putting some images from the show on our website or directing people to the art museum's website. But related to that, is there anything coming up in the months ahead either that you're involved with or that you just know about at the art museum that you think people might want to be aware of?
2: Yeah, well, um, just to speak on, yeah, the exhibition closes May 5th, but um, our video producer, John Richardson, has done some amazing podcast series. Mm. Um, so we have a podcast, too. Ah. Um, so the Portland Art Museum. And um, so, you know, we have these three, four minute videos of each artist. Um, but those interviews were really Wonderful. So those have been basically mostly unedited interviews transformed into the podcast format. Right. Um, so those are available. But for my area, I've got the Apex that will continue. So that's a show. It's a series of every six months. And so coming up next is Laura Fritz.
0: Oh, I'm a big fan. That's going to be great.
2: Oh, great. Yeah. And again, I can see why you're a big fan because she's really thinking about architecture mm-hmm. and also these other organic systems Mm -hmm. um, and sort of combining both Mm -hmm. so um, it's been really great to see laura's process of really visiting the space thinking about the architecture and then also looking at how to disrupt that architectural space
0: you bet you bet well grace thank you so much for joining us i really appreciate it and it's been fun to talk with you
2: thanks so much for having me good to talk to you
0: All right, so there you have it, a look at the Portland Art Museum's origins and the museum today, a look at its architecture and its art. Thanks again to Anthony Beluski and Grace Cook Anderson for being on the show. I've actually wondered about doing a second podcast episode about the museum someday, because there's any number of directions this conversation could have gone. We could have easily talked about Annabelle Crocker, who was the director of the art museum from 1909 to 1936, as well as the director of its museum school, which became the Pacific Northwest College of Art. Crocker was also a gifted artist in her own right, a painter. Her self-portrait from 1926, an oil painting on panel, is part of the Portland Art Museum's permanent collection, and uh, it's worth checking out. And we easily could have talked with the current director and chief curator at the Portland Art Museum, Brian Fariso. I've had the good fortune to talk with and interview Mr. Fariso many times, and I honestly appreciate how personable and affable he is, in addition to having a keen eye for art and a particularly strong appreciation for design. I hope we'll catch up with Brian Fariso for this podcast after the Rothko Pavilion is complete. And speaking of the Rothko Pavilion, I gotta say, I think the jury is still out on that design. There's no doubt it'll deliver an enhanced museum-going experience by connecting these two buildings, and getting to the Jubitz Center for Modern and Contemporary Art in the Mark Building will, thankfully, no longer require one to travel a circuitous underground path. But it was a huge bombshell when the architect everybody assumed would be chosen for this museum commission, Brad Cloakville and his firm Allied Works were passed up in favor of Chicago firm Vinci Hamp and local firm Heddeberry Eddy. Make no mistake, those are talented firms, too. But Allied Works has designed great art museums all over the country and is the top Portland firm of this generation. It was supposed to be theirs to lose. And there's been a real battle over whether the museum should be allowed to close off this public right-of-way at all. The museum was granted the right to do so by city council, but then they still altered the design to allow a bike and pedestrian passageway anyway. That means the Rothko Pavilion will no longer do the main thing it set out to do, connect the two buildings on their ground floors. The original museum's ground floor will now connect to the Mark Building's second floor. That's definitely a compromise. But we'll see how it plays out. Good design can solve any problem. But I think what I'd like to see most for the future of the Portland Art Museum is actually something that doesn't have to do with architecture or art or even its leaders and curators. Quite simply, I think the museum needs to have free admission. Not, say, one Thursday a month, as it seems to do now, but every day. Too many people think of museums as being not-for-them, as being somehow elitist or unwelcoming. We need our cultural institutions to be accessible to everyone and filled with visitors from diverse backgrounds and means. Today, artists are actually spending less time on painting and sculpture and more time creating experiential art. I think getting a wider swatch of the public inside Pietro Belewski's beautiful building to see that beautiful art, whether it's Native American canoes or European paintings or Japanese ceramics, I mean, that's the ultimate act of creation itself here's that free resource from our sponsor mutual materials it's the home and yard idea book just filled with more than 150 pages of project photos from homes and yards across the pacific northwest you can download it from mutualmaterials.com in search of portland is brought to you by mutual materials and x-ray fm thanks to our producers amalia Boyles and ed curtis Thanks as well to my friends in the Washington DC band, Beauty Pill, for providing the music for In Search of Portland. Their last album, Beauty Pill Describes Things As They Are, was named one of the top 50 albums of the year by both National Public Radio and Rolling Stone magazine. Keep an eye out for their next album, entitled Please Advise. And thanks as well to Nikolai Kruger for providing original artwork for each episode that you can find on our website. You can find all episodes of this podcast at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts.